You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Sri Lanka investigates a homegrown jihadist group with possible international connections for the Easter massacres. New Zealand is preparing the Christchurch call to exclude violent terrorist content from the Internet. Shadowhammer moves its supply chain attacks upstream. Carbonac source code seems to have been in virus total for two years. Someone spoofing financial institutions. Bots surged upon the release of the Mueller report. And ASD offers a council of perfection. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 24, 2019. The death toll in Sri Lanka's Easter massacres has now risen above 350. The country's intelligence services have identified Mauvi Zaran Hashim as the leader of the coordinated attacks against Christians at worship and foreigners in tourist hotels. Hashim is generally being described as a radical Islamic cleric known for his online sermons calling for the extermination of unbelievers. He's been delivering this message over several years, often using imagery of the burning Twin Towers as a backdrop for his homilies. ISIS has, of course, claimed responsibility for the murders, and Hashim has over the years spoken with approval of the caliphate and its commitment to jihad. As ISIS enters its diaspora phase, without control of any territory worth mentioning, Observers think the jihadist group will increase its online presence. The bombings in Sri Lanka weren't instances of the now sadly familiar pattern of lone wolves being inspired to kill by example and exhortation. Those indeed remain a threat, but the Sri Lanka attacks were organized, coordinated, and centrally directed. The operational style is closer to that which al-Qaeda demonstrated during the 9-11 attacks. The suspects in the bombing, including all of those arrested, are Sri Lankan citizens, not foreigners. It's believed that some of those involved had returned from abroad, where they had fought for ISIS. That's a relatively small group. Sri Lanka's Muslim minority population hasn't contributed a large contingent to ISIS jihad. Unfortunately, a small contingent is all that's necessary. Security organizations responded quickly to the attacks, rounding up bomb-making material and taking a large number of people in for questioning, but poor interagency coordination seems to have led them to miss warnings of coming attacks, even when such warnings were issued by national authorities, and even went so far as to name the group thought likely to conduct attacks and its probable ringleader. There's always a lot of signal lost in the noise, even when intelligence services have a good idea that something's up. But in this case, the failure to heed the warning seems to have been a more serious matter of poor coordination and even alleged political infighting, of the bureaucratic as opposed to the ideological variety. Sri Lanka's president seems to think so. 
President Sirisena has asked for the resignation of both the defense secretary and national police chief. Some 60 arrests have been made so far. The attackers have been characterized as well-off and well-educated, with some of them having been educated in the UK and Australia. This would fit a long-standing pattern of an educated and relatively prosperous class seeking transcendence through a leadership role in revolutionary violence. But the investigation is still young, and the state of emergency remains in effect. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has issued a Christchurch call, inviting other countries to join in restricting the distribution of extremist content through social media. The text of the Christchurch call is still being finalized. But in outline, its goal is to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online. She acknowledges the difficulty of doing so, but thinks the killer who murdered Muslims in their mosque on March 15th did one thing that was unprecedented: he live-streamed the massacre as he was committing it. This is the model of violent extremist content she has in mind. She's enlisted the support of France initially and hopes other countries will join once the Christchurch call is complete. It will be, the prime minister says, actionable and not aspirational. Kaspersky Lab has linked the Shadowhammer supply chain attack to the Shadowpad threat actor. The attackers successfully backdoored widely used developer tools. Among the products affected were online games. These are thought to be the same actors who earlier this year targeted Asus and its software update process, but this time they seem to have moved farther upstream. They are now believed to have meddled with versions of the Microsoft Visual Studio development tool used by various video game companies in developing their wares. The attackers used the corrupted development tool to insert malware into the finished games, backdooring the gamers who purchase and play them. You'd think if it was up on Virus Total, someone would notice, right? Well, not so fast. The Carbonac source code has apparently been there for about two years, and everybody overlooked it until FireEye researchers found it. We thought this must mean that Virus Total is like that big government warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where FDR's administration sends the Ark to reside in perpetual obscurity with an unimaginable quantity of other precious, dangerous, embarrassing, or curious things. But one of our team pointed out that no, that warehouse was designed to conceal things quietly, not make them available to those who wanted them. He's probably right. So maybe Virus Total is more like a teenager's bedroom. There's a popular notion that more and more we are heading toward a gig economy, with workers moving from job to job rather than taking on a full-time position with a single organization. There are opportunities and challenges associated with this sort of approach for both those doing the work and those doing the hiring. Top Coder is a company that set out to make it easier and more secure for both sides of that equation, offering a platform that connects and manages gig coders and the people who need them. Michael Morris is CEO at Top Coder. You can still go down and do background checks and do、um, contracts and NDAs and the same type of call it paper-based security models that companies use today. That can still be done, but frankly, it's really kind of as as worth as much as the paper that it's written on in many cases because you're subject to whatever the human behavior is of the person on the other side of that. Um, but we still can enforce all of those types of requirements. Like the person has to be a resident of this country. They have to、um, have the past work experience that is X or not Y. They have to agree to certain terms and conditions and sign documents. So all of those things can be tracked. 
But the things that we feel are more important is really getting down to a granular level of tracking security. And when I say security, I'm kind of right now combining together not only the security of the code or the deliverables that come back, but also the security of the IP that goes out and the IP that comes in. So you can track security on an extremely granular level. We require that every time an interaction happens, we are tracing back who has access to that data, where is the data being put, how do I ensure that nobody else can download that data, you know, who can see it. When anything comes back into us, we do the same type of um, transactional-based uh, security checks. So whether it's virus scanning, code reviews, we have a minimum of two people look at each piece of code that comes in uh, manually. So these are actually paid reviewers that will look through code. Um, and to, to me, it, be, it creates a much more secure and robust way of working um, versus the traditional model of, uh, of just assembling teams together and having that ad hoc requirement for security. This is just built into the process. Topcoder uses a, a rating system as well. So a lot of people will think about the gig economy models as this unknown group of people. And in the Topcoder world, that almost couldn't be farther from the truth. So a lot of what we do is in the form of we run a lot of competitions. So if we're trying to solve something complicated, we have multiple people try to solve it, and we pay the ones that do the best job. You know, not only the the, the best one, but we will also pay different places. Um, we do that on the algorithm side. We do that in the coding side. We do that in the creative design side. So it's it's a way of working in our environment where you can um, you can create this um, competitive but still collaborative environment for people to work within. So we track everything from somebody's reliability to their performance. We graph it against their peers. We have rating systems. So if you think of like what Major League Baseball does for their players, we do that same type of thing for our community. But we track them on their uh, accomplishments You know, when they uh, compete in something or produce something all of those scores, all of those reviews, all of that data gets inputted into our platform and it shows up in their profile. So mm-hmm. these are very much known entities that are in this community. And, uh, and, and in my opinion, it's, uh, it's, that's the type of thing, again, we kind of think that the paradigm shift moving to the gig economy, it's a misconception to think that these are unknown entities. Yeah, they may be remote and virtual, but they're very well known. Um, they're very well represented in terms of what they've done in the past, right? These are known entities. These are people that have a background and have a track record um, that you can look at and see. You can see the people that are working on your projects. That's Michael Morris. He is the CEO at Topcoder. Gray Noise Intelligence, a network traffic mapping shop, has seen an unusual surge in traffic that spoofs major financial institutions. Sure, there's spoofing that goes on all the time, but Gray Noise told CyberScoop that this is really a concentrated wave of spoofing. Why it's being done is unclear, but there's some speculation that an attempt to embarrass security vendors may be in the works. The U.S. House of Representatives would like Google to explain its Sensor Vault location database. Specifically, they'd like Mountain View to tell them why they collect it and what they do with it, 
who has access to it and why they seem to hang on to it for essentially forever. The bosses behind the hands, behind the keyboards, behind the bots didn't much like the Mueller report. Bots took to the Internet in large numbers after the report was released last Thursday. Security firm Safeguard Cyber told us in an emailed comment that this is a pattern. The bots and the trolls who go with them tend to remain, as Safeguard put it, dormant until a particular topic or event aligns with their disinformation campaign. A lot of the bot chatter was Russian, but not all of it. There are, if NBC News is to be believed, also indications that some of the bot masters are in Saudi Arabia. Why their chatter should align with what St. Petersburg is woofing isn't immediately obvious. And finally, the Australian Signals Directorate says that government agencies don't really have to follow its recommended security controls because those controls, best practices though they may be, might just be too hard to follow. ZDNet sniffs that ASD is showing a can't-do attitude, but it also raises a question worth considering. If a practice is realistically too difficult to be followed, can it be a best practice? Perhaps we need a new category of control. Not best practice, but counsel of perfection. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Professor Awais Rashid. He's a professor of cybersecurity at University of Bristol. Awais, it's great to have you back. Um, we wanted to talk today about risk assessments, and specifically uh, evidence-based risk assessments. What do you have to share with us today? I think the keyword here is data, data. 
and data. Hmm. Uh, the challenge uh, usually is that uh, th we have a number of risk assessment frameworks that are out there, lots of uh, best practices and guidelines, but we often do not have very good data sources and information sources on which these risk assessments are based. Uh, they are times derived from low-level technical measures that don't necessarily relate to the higher-level business objectives of organizations, uh, or vice versa, they are based on estimates because they're based on expert judgment. And I think the key challenge here is how do we actually ensure that we are getting the right type of data to inform risk decision-making within organizations and that there is a full traceability of those risk decisions all the way from the data points that we get and their impact on the overall uh, business and effectiveness of the organization. What about uh, situations where a type of business, for example, could be growing very quickly, changing very quickly, and be new? And, and obviously this applies to cybersecurity. There may not be that uh, historical data that you can use uh, to, to make your risk assessment with. Yes, yeah, so historical data is just one type of data. Mm. Uh, the question is, you know, what, what is it that you need in terms of your organization at a particular point in time in making decisions? And your example is actually excellent in the sense that you are in a business that are growing. And as you're growing and new, new people are joining the business, are you simply considering access control mechanisms for those people? But are, are you also considering that perhaps your HR department is now getting overloaded and they are not able to actually... Uh, notify in time when people are leaving uh, your organization so that their credentials can be revoked in time and so on and so forth. So the key is understanding where an organization is at a particular point in time, understanding what the goals are, what, what are the challenges that it is facing at a particular point in time, and then seeing what data is relevant in terms of making risk decisions. At the moment, a lot of the risk decisions are um, made on the basis of uh, estimates and probabilities. And th that's that's a good way of doing things. But we can't keep doing it just simply based on estimates and probabilities. We need to better instrument our systems and organizations to get actual data so that we can make decisions that are based on actual evidence of what's happening within an organization and what kind of risks are actually posed. This, this also takes me on to an example that uh, in some of the studies that we have done, we often see that organizations worry about the risks that don't necessarily immediately impact them. And the focus always tends to be is on, on very high-level risks, on very sophisticated attackers who may want to compromise the organization when actually the biggest risk might come from the low-skilled, you know, opportunistic attacker who may just exploit a very simple vulnerability because you're not really considering that those, those things need to, be, uh, need to be taken care of. And I think this is really what, what I mean, that we need to really understand as to where the risks come from and collect much, much better data that in general, there aren't really very good good ways, A, to instrument systems at the moment, but also B, actually then taking that into risk decision-making in an effective way that informs the more senior members of an organization. Hmm. Now, how much do you suppose it helps to bring someone in from the outside, someone who, who has no emotional attachment to any of the, the internal goings-on in within the organization? Oh, that's a... That's a tricky question. Uh, it is a tricky question that if I, if I say, no, uh, it's not a good idea, then, you know, I'm basically telling that nobody should invite any consultant ever into an organization. Yeah. Uh, and if I say it is a good idea, then, you know, everybody will invite consultants. I think the, the fact of the matter is that uh, there is a balance. People coming from outside can often see things that you can't internally see within an organization because let's just say you're too close to the situation. And, and uh, what may seem 
day-to-day practice or what may be data that you don't think is relevant, maybe more or less relevant to what you want to do. But that shouldn't be at the expense of what is uh, embedded tested knowledge within the organization. And a lot of work actually that we have ourselves and others have done shows that in fact, so-called lay users within an organization, uh, non-security users often tend to have a lot of contextual knowledge. And if you actually speak to them, they can understand as they can explain as to where potential risks are arising, but also why do they arise in that particular way? Because it could be that the way the security systems are designed are not designed to fit in with what they need to do to get their job done, for instance. And that's why they end up, for example, times being bypassed or slightly molded to get get what needs to be done. It has to be a balance as to, you know, bringing an external perspective versus actually leveraging what is perhaps a major source of information the employees of an organization because they often understand the context really, really well and they can actually articulate things that uh, an external person may not know. Professor Awais Rashid, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.